quote, A thief in the night, I've come to steal not jewels and money, but your personal safety, privacy, and security. I violate your inner asylum of intimacy, stoking out with all the hate I have for myself projected onto you. Senseless insanity derived from desperation in all its doom. The hounds of hell have come for my life, payment due. The piper of fear you must pay. The imprint of my life on society forever to stay. Sowing the seeds of psychological terror. The reflection of your hidden cruelty exposed in my mirror. I piss on your optical illusion of peace and innocence. A menacing mind bent on vengeance. Holding captive your sense of security, I feast on your animosity. Your peace of mind and reality. The possession of your thoughts, a vast excitement, heightened by the tantalization of mutual resentment. I experience your indignation you can't seem to see, engulfing me, embracing me. You can never forget me. That was a passage from the diary of Joshua Komisarjewski, a man who could have, if he so desired, slip noiselessly into your home just to feel the tingling rush of energy that comes with evil deeds. He once commented in a court of law that he liked to learn the noises of a home and slip through them only making sounds that would register with a wakeful occupant as outside the ordinary. If Joshua had entered your home, more often than not, he would first steal some cash and other easily transported valuables. And then... He would wander through the house like a ghost, stealing into rooms completely undetected, finally slipping into your bedroom so he could watch you breathe. That was his favorite part. And then he would disappear. The creak on the stairs assumed to be just the cat, the rumble in the kitchen so similar to the ice maker, the click in the front hall just the normal settlings of the house. Evil had wound its way through your home like smoke curling silently through a forest before the flames arrive. Meanwhile, no one had even shifted to the cool side of their pillow. Any one of us can be betrayed by the familiar because there is no way to see it coming, even as it silently watches you breathe. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would would be be dead. dead. is like four pages long. Oh my god, I don't <laughs> want to do this one anymore. <laughs> it's spooky. And there's a lot I um I mention it later, but in the show notes, I will I will make sure I link to that whole thing so that if people want to read it in the, in its entirety, they can cuz there's more and it's Okay. It's a lot. <laughs> oh god, what a monster. Yeah, he's a super monster. I mean, there are two of them, but we'll get we'll get to all that later. Hey Leslie. Hey Holly. Hey Fiends. We have quite a case for you this week. Um, Before I get into 
into it all, I want to mention that a lot of my information comes from court documents and police reports, as per usual. But um, this week, we also utilized the HBO documentary, The Cheshire Murders. And if you would like to learn more about the case after this episode, please give it a watch. It's HBO, so you know it's good. Uh, It's not Netflix, though, so it's a little light on the trees. (laughs) (laughs) I will include the full poem, as I said, I quoted in the opening as well as the full police reports and any other relevant documents that I can, um, that I have access to. So this week we'll probably end up down a rabbit hole and we are not sorry about it. (laughs) There's just like a lot of information on this one. Mm -hmm. So as I said, we're talking about the Cheshire murders, meaning Cheshire, Connecticut, not, not like a Cheshire cat. Of course. That is where the Cheshire cat lives though. Is it? No. Damn it. (laughs) But I always thought it did. (laughs) God damn it, Leslie. I was like, great. So ready to believe it. Cool. (laughs) Um, As usual, we humbly implore you to go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us. It is my life's ambition to be a you might also like um, when people go looking for morbid. So (laughs) you like them, you might like us too. Yay. Cool. And guess what? You will. Absolutely you will. Yeah. I like them, too. I would totally hang out with them. That would be delightful. Oh, that would be great. Wouldn't it? Maybe someday. Yeah. We'll just have cocktails and talk about spooky things. Oh, my God. That would be the most fun. Morbid, come come hang out with us. Yeah. They won't. But it would be cool. <laughs> we have room on our couch. <laughs> we do. I have more stuffed animals and a haunted doll. So. Yeah. It's here, cool. Here for it. We are currently staring down the barrel of August, so this week we'll decide on a date for our patron meetup at the Mutter Museum, Um, and if their poison garden is open, which I'm pretty certain it is, I'll bring along a short story to tell you while that warm Philadelphia breeze drifts through the hemlock and belladonna. So, without further ado, shall we get into this case? Let's do it. All right. At 9.21 a.m. on the morning of July 23, 2007, the Cheshire, Connecticut Police Department was made aware of a 911 call that came in from a local Bank of America teller named Mary Lyons, who I freaking love this woman. She is a badass. Ms. Lyons said a regular customer named Jennifer Pettit, and by the way, it is Pettit, and I want to say Petite every single Mm -hmm. time I read it. Every time. I apologize if I at all give in to that urge and say that. I know it's not, and I know it's pronounced Pettit. Pettit. So don't come for me, Like the baseball player. There's a baseball player? Yeah, Yankees player. Do we like him? Pettit. Is that a good thing? Or just a random thing? Okay. Yeah, he was a pitcher. Cool. I don't know any. I don't know what teams I'm supposed to like, so whatever. Yankees. You like the Yankees. I thought I liked the Phillies for a long time. I went to their games and everything. Oh. They won the World Series when I was on my honeymoon. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I think they won. Didn't they win? I, don't, I wasn't on your honeymoon, so I don't know. Listen, but you were alive. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Ms. Lyons said that a regular customer, as I said, named Jennifer Pettit, had come in looking distressed but acting calm. Ms. Pettit told the teller that she and her family were being held hostage in her home and that she needed to withdraw $15,000 to give to her captors. She informed Ms. Lyons that her captor had driven her there and was waiting in the bank parking lot for her to return with the money. 
Mrs. Pettit made it clear that she and her family needed help, but that she could not panic or make a scene because her husband and two young daughters were still at home with their other captor, and she did not want her actions to put them in harm's way. There is a video of this, and it is surreal. She's just, like, calmly, like, staring at this bank teller and telling her, like, there is an audio. I've seen the video and then heard the 911 call. But, like, you can see her her face is clearly, like, petrified, and it is chilling. Ms. Lyons handed her her money and then immediately called 911, like, while Jennifer Hogpettit was still in the building. She just, like, grabbed the phone and mm-hmm. immediately called as she was walking out the door. Lyons said to the 911 dispatcher, quote, We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The people in the car are outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring to them. If the police are told, they will kill her children and her husband. She says they are being very nice. They have their faces covered. She is petrified. They told her they wouldn't hurt anybody if she got back there with the money, and she believes them. That one last quotation really puts a monkey wrench in this situation, and and we'll see how. But, like, remember that the bank teller said, they're being nice. She says that all she has to do is give them the money. (sighs) Fiends. Let me start by saying that if you are ever a person, if there is ever a person on the periphery of your life that you want to mention in passing to that you're in trouble, your bank attendant is a great person to pick. And here's why. They know more about your life than you would immediately think. Mm -hmm. They know your address. They know your phone number. They know, like, when you make regular uh, monetary transactions. They know where you work. They know so much more about you than than you would think somebody you don't know does. So, I mean, it was kind of serendipitous that she was at her regular bank. And they, and this woman, Mary Lyons, was able to see the car that Jennifer left in as well. And this call, the 911 call she made, should have had a pretty immediate response, right? That's like a pretty desperate situation and a lot of information. But it didn't really. And the Pettits didn't live that far from the bank. However, a half an hour later, after the call came in, another 911 call came into dispatchers from, this time, a neighbor of the Pettit family. And it went like this. The neighbor's name is Dave Simcik, or Simcik, S-I-M-C-I-K. It is not pronounced anywhere, so I'm going to go with Simcik right now. He says, quote, I got Bill Pettit here who's hurt, my neighbor. The 911 operator says, quote, he's at your house. Sam Kick, we'll, we'll vary it, says, yes, he's right here. 911 operator said, okay, what's wrong with him? What's going on, sir? And then a police officer on the scene grabbed the phone. The officer says, you two, get in the house, get in the house. Need the 101 here now, head injury. The bill our caller is referring to is Dr. William Pettit, husband to Jennifer and father of her two daughters, Haley and Michaela. Dr. Pettit had suffered severe head injuries and a substantial amount of blood loss. In fact, His head had been so disfigured in the attack that his neighbor didn't even recognize him at first. Wow. Yeah. And if you watch the documentary there, you see see him. He, he, it's rough. Dr. Pettit had staggered out of an exterior basement door where he immediately saw his neighbors, like, so as soon as he staggered out, he could see his neighbor, like, across the yards. And they had, like, pretty considerable yards, like a nice neighborhood with big houses. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. you've, you've been in these places, which we will get to. And so Dr. Pettit calls out to him immediately, and his neighbor, Dave, rushed over to help him. He propped up Dr. Pettit and brought him over to his yard area and just immediately called 911. Now think about that scenario again. 
Does anything seem a little off? All of it seems off to me. Right, it all seems <laughs> awful. But here's the thing that I you don't grab when you read it right away. A police officer grabbed yeah. the phone out of his neighbor's hand. Mm-hmm. Which means there were officers on the scene, none of whom were helping the Pettit family. Right. Dr. Pettit had escaped his captors, who had clearly done him extreme bodily harm, staggered across his lawn completely out in the open, and was only rescued by his civilian neighbor. Police on the scene knew that Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her two daughters were still in that house with two kidnappers, and they were nowhere to be found. They had not gone in the house. They had not called nothing. As it turns out, officers had been busy setting up a perimeter in the woods surrounding the Pettit home and discussing how to deal with what they had supposed was going to be a non-dangerous hostage situation. Is that even a thing? No. All hostage situations are dangerous, right? You should always assume they're in danger. Right. That's they could I... always escalate, so. Right. And this woman, like, ugh, she, she clearly was in danger. And I feel like if there are hostages and one of them is a woman draining her bank account in fear, then there is a clear and present danger to their lives. But that's not the scenario the cops went with. They went with that one line in the 911 call when the woman said, she says they're nice, they just want money. And so they just ran with the fact that nobody was really threatened. They had like a hostage negotiator they were talking to to work out situations and stuff, but they did not think, we better get in that house. <sighs> Many people, including the Hawk and Pettit families, believe that the Cheshire police horribly mismanaged the situation. I don't think they're wrong. Mr. Pettit would later, or sorry, Dr. Pettit would later say that when he managed to escape his home in abject terror, he was met with the sight of a lot of eyes flickering in the woods, which sounds like just a really creepy thing to say. Yeah. Or something that someone with like a giant gaping head injury might say. Mm-hmm. But it was the police. Right. The woods were full of people. They just weren't looking at him. <sighs> and that's what, I mean, his family believed that, that, that he was speaking about all the police officers who were close enough to see, but never even tried to enter the home. And we'll get more into this aspect of the situation later. But for now, it's just important that we keep that information in our minds as we proceed. Okay. Moments after neighbor Dave's 911 call, the Pettit's house on Sorghum Road erupted in flames. And the family's SUV came barreling down the driveway, only to crash headlong into a roadblock the police had set up earlier. So they did that right. Police rushed the scene of the crash and apprehended 44-year-old Stephen Hayes and 26-year-old Joshua Komisarjewski. Both men were taken into police custody. Dr. Pettit was taken away in an ambulance to a local hospital. And once the blaze in the house was extinguished, it was determined that Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her two daughters, Haley and Michaela, we're dead. Yeah. Jeez. So what the ever-loving fuck happened? Yeah. Right? Because it feels very bungling and weird and mismanaged. And mm-hmm. and and it was in some ways. It This case is kind of as twisted and complicated as an old box of Christmas lights. But sit tight because we're going to untangle it all for you. First, let's talk about the Pettits because they are the important people here. And we should get to know them before yeah. we get to know their story. All four of them were wonderful people who did absolutely nothing to invite such a nightmare into their home. And I want to go into this segment about them with that statement so that no one thinks even for a moment that they might somehow be to blame. This was a super random. They, right. did, they didn't know these guys. They did nothing. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to say that from the jump. 
Yeah, for sure. Dr. William Pettit was born on September 24th, 1956. He would go on to become an endocrinologist and the medical director at the Joslin Diabetes Center at Connecticut's Central Hospital. But before he made his way to Connecticut, Dr. Pettit had attended the University of Pittsburgh, which I think this is graduate school or undergrad because he does go on to get his, his doctorate from Yale Medical School. Okay. But, like, they don't really – this part isn't specified too much, so – That's what I'm gleaning from information that I gathered. At the University of Pittsburgh in his third year, which was 1985, Dr. Pettit met a young, well, I guess mister at the time, met a young oncology nurse named Jennifer Hawk. Dr. Pettit tells a very charming story in the HBO documentary about the day he first met his wife. He said he saw her and she was really pretty and he wanted to talk to her. So he went over and tried to tell her the proper way to take a patient's blood pressure, (laughs) which is something he had, like, learned that day. Okay. But she was, like, very proficient at it because she was a nurse. Yeah. (laughs) So later he was like, oh, it's so embarrassing. It was something she was so good at, but I just really wanted to talk to her. Aw. I know. Isn't that cute? (laughs) I love that story. But the two hit it off immediately, and they were married within the year. Yeah. Wow. Quick! So – uh, why don't we talk a little bit about 1985, Leslie, so we can get a nice clear picture of this young couple and the world they were living in and the life they were going to enter. Okay. So um, for 1985, I picked up some wedding trends. Ooh. Yes. Couples were much more involved in planning their own ceremony than couples of the past. Okay. They really wanted to ensure that their wedding is more of a reflection of themselves than anything else. Okay. I like that. This was also one of the first years where you were seeing more trends of smaller ceremonies as well. A lot of couples were, especially women, were not living in, you know, in their hometown anymore. So, like, their guest list might not be as large. Well, there's certainly, if they if they got married in Connecticut... The- I mean, Jennifer was born in New Jersey, so it was not her hometown. Yeah, so people might not visit or things like that. I mean, they could have had a big wedding. I'm not sure. Brides were looking for gowns with off-the-shoulder necklines, short full sleeves worn with matching mitts or gauntlets. Wow. Elegant (laughs) beaded treatments and elaborate lace embroideries. (laughs) (laughs) I love an elegant beaded treatment. (laughs) Yes, so good. Fabric-wise, they wanted silk organza, peau de salt, peau, wait, poi. I tried to practice this so many times. I love it. Okay. Peau de sal. Nope. P-E-A-U. There you go. Spell it out. D-E-S-O-I-E. I'm so mad because I took French and I tried practicing this. I said it on the way here. I'm so mad. I don't anyway, speak any French. Peau de it's, soi? It's soi? like a peau de soie. I think, it, I think it's peau de soie. Beautiful. Um, It's a smooth, finely ribbed satin fabric of silk or rayon. Oh, fancy rayon. Yes. That was more for brides that were getting married in the fall or winter, but the spring and summer brides also enjoyed it if they had, like, air condition in their churches. Good thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many brides were in their mid-20s with established careers, so their taste of wedding fashions would be more mature and sophisticated, Basically, less ruffles and more focus on quality and exquisite details. Fewer child brides, more off the shoulder. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And bridesmaids, you are not forgotten. (laughs) No, not in the 80s you weren't. Nope. (laughs) Colors would be rich magenta, plum, royal blue, lilac, and mauve. Not teal. 
Maybe that's more of a 90s thing. Mm -hmm. And the silhouettes included drop waist styles and a return to the bolero jackets over spaghetti strap dresses. That's going to be your wedding, right? That's going to, yeah. Can't I mean, wait to see this it. is some good. Yeah. You should like take, take heed. Yeah. <laughs> take heed. <laughs> I have like a cabin in the woods moment yeah. for a second. Take heed. Take heed. <laughs> So that was 1985. That was the year that they met and also got married. Now, I'm unclear as to where they got married because they met in Pittsburgh. She is from New Jersey. They lived in Connecticut, so it could have been anywhere. But, like, that's the kind of fun, fabulous wedding time they would have been having. Did they – you said that they met in Pittsburgh? Yes, because they were both at the University of Pittsburgh, like the hospital. He was a third-year – Medical student, which they say third year. I, maybe I don't have a firm grasp on medical mm-hmm. school, but he, he he was doing some form of his medical training yeah. there, and then he went on to That's Yale. That's like when you have your residency, and then they move you, so then he went probably over to Yale maybe, to finish out his- Because if you look at any of his pages, and it's like, where did he get his degree? It says Yale Medical School. Yeah. Doesn't say Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That's no. probably where he finished it, so he got residency there and then moved on to finish his degree. Your residency is after you finish your degree. Is it? Okay. That much I know. Okay. Um. Whatever. Either way, but I, he definitely I should, I should went have to asked Yale, Lisa. Yeah. I'm sorry. A <laughs> 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 resident doctor. I'm so sorry, Lisa. I should have asked you. Um. That's right. I forgot. That is after. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. I mean, like that's that's kind of what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was like a fast moving life. They were traveling. They were both very educated. They had good jobs on the horizon, and they were. Um. They got married. There was. Probably organza and yes, mutton chop <laughs> sleeves or whatever. It was a it was a delightful time to be alive. Jennifer Hawk Pettit, we're going to talk about about her now. Was born in Morristown, New Jersey, on September twenty sixth, nineteen fifty eight. The daughter of Reverend Richard and Mary Bell Hawk of Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, and Venice, Florida. A graduate of Greenville Senior High School in Pennsylvania, so she was also spent some of her life in Pennsylvania and moved around a lot. Jennifer was the captain of her drill team. I should say that this portion about Jennifer, like her little bio, is is directly from her obituary. So this is from her family. Okay. Um, I figured they would know. Yeah. They'd be um, the best ones. Jennifer was the captain of her drill team, a member of the National Thespian Society, and a member of her homecoming court. She received her degree in nursing from Sharon School of Nursing in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Jennifer began her career as a pediatric oncology nurse at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where she met the love of her life, Bill. Um, Dr. Pettit went by Bill. Prior to their marriage on April 13, 1985, in Meadville, Pennsylvania, Jennifer was employed as a pediatric nurse at the Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, so everywhere, in addition to performing nursing duties in Sarasota, Florida. Jennifer and William continued their medical careers at Yale New Haven Hospital, following the births of their daughters Haley Elizabeth and Michaela Rose, soon after which Jennifer began working as a school nurse for Cheshire Academy, a private boarding school. Just a few short years before Jennifer's tragic death, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, but never let it slow her down. Nice. So she went by Jen, and apparently she was a force to be reckoned with. There's so many wonderful, sunshiny things that people have to say about her. She was very kind, very active, very good at her job, very motivated, a good mom. She loved working at the school. She really, like, private schools are are such a small and involved, mm-hmm. like, community, and she really took on students, like, she took on a motherly role with them when they needed something. So that's just the kind of person that she was. 
When Jennifer and William moved to Connecticut, they decided to settle down in the little town of Cheshire. Cheshire was the kind of place where anyone would want to settle down and raise a family, and where a successful young couple like the Pettits would thrive. But you do not have to take that from me. This case was actually chosen because Leslie grew up right in that area, right? Right outside of, like... Yeah, we weren't um too close, but they were... Uh... But yeah, we. I mean, Connecticut's small. So. Right, so, so, so outside of Cheshire, and mm-hmm. you have friends who were directly impacted by yes. this case, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so why don't you give us a little taste of what Cheshire is like? All right, so um, <laughs> I don't get to use my first line that I have in here. We've already we've already stated it. I'll throw it in there. God anyway. damn it! Um, Cheshire, Connecticut, was first settled in 196. When sorry. 1960. 1960. Wow. It was right? just uninhabited for a it really was, long time. Yeah, we just found it. Wow. <laughs> they skipped over it and they're like, oh, wait, we should figure this shit out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Cheshire, Connecticut first settled in 1694. That's very different. And is home of the Cheshire cat. So really? Let's move on to that. <laughs> I was going to buy into it again. It's really psychedelic there. Oh my God. I love it. Can't wait. The town is actually known as the bedding plant capital of Connecticut. Bedding plant? Yes. Um, it's not for bed sheets because that's what I thought it was oh, for. Oh, bedding. But yeah, so Cheshire was settled as a farming town and has continued to be one to this day. Cool. The town has about 30 farms with 400 million plants and 300 different varieties spread out between them. That is so many plants. It's so many plants. It's like... Crazy plants. It's like 400 million plants. That's an imaginary figure. Yeah. There is never actually 400 million anything. Well, they would know. They would know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I got that right from the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> well, they, there's a lot of plants there. So yeah. if you guys go, you'll be wading through plants. Yes. <laughs> so the town has had significant growth over the century, but still maintains its royal charm due to an aggressive preservation campaign. Of plants. Yes, of okay. plants. Got it. <laughs> so it's still, um, Cheshire was always one of those towns, like even the houses, they all kind of, they're modern, but they still, you still get that colonial vibe there. They're like big, too. They're, it's like they're a, big. kind of a richy rich community. Yeah, I'll get, I'll, I'm getting get, there. Get there, all right, we're, we're good. <laughs> In addition to its agricultural sector, the town has thousands of acres of open space and parks. So to give you another idea of what this town was like, this included 73-acre Quinnipiac Recreation Area on Cheshire Street, the 58-acre Mixville Recreation Area, and Lock 12 Historical Park. So there's like these big, huge-ass parks. That's big. Yeah. Yeah. And there are three of them. And I think there's even a fourth one there now. Um, Jesus. Just in Cheshire? That's big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the former canal lock includes a gatekeeper's house, an arched railroad bridge, and a blacksmith shop from the early 1800s. How quaint! I know, <laughs> I know. Um, this is just growing up in New England. Like, there is always these little things. I love it. I love so New England. The town's newest park is Linear Park. It runs from, this is for all the people that live around there. Okay. Um, it runs for Cornwall from Cornwall Avenue. Uh, to Mount Sanford Road and provides a 2.9-mile paved trail for walking, jogging, inline skating, or cross-country skiing. Because that is oh. so preppy. Of them. Yeah, <laughs> it's man. Like so white. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> cross-country skiing. I can just 
visualize this situation. Yeah. Can you imagine our, like, we have a bike trail by us. Can you imagine if they were, like, bike trail or cross-country skiing? They'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Find me someone with cross-country skis. (laughs) That's how I would go. Also, find me snow. You can't. You can't. Um, The houses are beautiful. The yards are large, as we just talked about. There's, like, a lot of space between them. Yeah, and that comes into play because I know their development is, like, the way I imagine it is, like, backed by woods probably. But then Mm -hmm. that space between homes was probably pretty big enough to have, like, some trees. Right. They probably had a decent-sized backyard, a very large front yard, you know, like, large enough that you could probably play soccer and stuff like that and not worry about cars – Coming like by. space from the yes, road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they probably had a large backyard and then the woods too. So there was probably a nice parameter. So yeah, if there's shit going on in that house, your neighbors wouldn't necessarily know. Right. Like you'd have to be screaming pretty loud. So. Even so. Yeah. The families are upper middle class, mostly Democrats, but ride the line on more conservative versus progressive. Uh, they love their history. They are proud of their town, their school systems public and private are great. And to give you a perfect picture of this town, here are the demographics for Cheshire during uh, this 2007 era. Okay. And a lot of this hasn't really changed either. So they just did it the sentence against like that long. No, either, it hasn't. So. so 90% of the town is white, Italian American and Irish American descent. 5% were African American. Up your diversity, Cheshire. And it's still about the same now. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, 40% of the households have children under the age of 18 living with them. So now I'm going to go into a little bit of what the area looked like, too. Right. The kids so that's a lot of families. If a you have kids under 18, it's a lot of, like, mm-hmm. young families. 70% were married couples living together. So, again, large families. 70% 70 is high. High. Mm-hmm. Wow. Only 7% had a female householder with no husband present. So in some of that number, we'll also include people over 65, so they may have, like, lost their husband. Oh, okay. Wow. So it is is all married Married families or men living there. Yeah. (laughs) Ew. If you're just the man that lives in that neighborhood of families. One of those houses, yeah. You probably creepy. Yeah. Just Mm -hmm. saying. Uh, The average household size was (laughs) 2.71. Oh. I love the percentages on those. Who's like a 0.71 person? Yeah. I like that. And the average family size was 3.14. And the median household income was above 123000 They're doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that income is probably coming from one person versus two, you know. Possible. As well. I mean, this Not is all a- the time, but it just, yeah. Only 1.6% of the families and 3% of the population fell below the poverty line. So this was a very well-to-do area. Yeah, man. Cheshire is home to a large state prison facilities located in the northern section of the town. The larger of these facilities is the Cheshire Correctional Institution, which opened in 1913. And in 1982, the Manson Youth Institution opened adjacent to... Um, the Cheshire Correctional Institution. And the larger of these prisons, which was the Cheshire, the adult prison, right? that was actually located across the street from the Chapman Elementary School, which was only separated by one road, like a main road. Do you know road. what I just figured out? My elementary school has a prison like right across the street and down the block from it, and I never knew. I never knew. I lived in Bordentown for the longest time. I went there. I, I mean, it's past 
going past my elementary school, you're going like off kind of into farm territory. Yeah. And Will and I were driving. For some reason, we were like listening to something after we had gone and run an errand and the kids were at my parents' house. We're like, we're going to drive around a little bit to finish listening to this one thing. And Will was like, is that a prison right near your elementary school? It's like, oh shit, I guess it yeah. is. If you look on the map to this, it's it's directly across the street. Ah, uh, Yeah. Why, why, why? I, can't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay, so I spoke with my college roommate. Shout out to Lindsay Canuzzi. Well, she's married now. So that's Thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> my roomie. Um, she lives in Watertown, um, which is just the town over. Uh, from so Cheshire. probably a similar demographic and feel. Similar but different. She, okay. So I would say Watertown is probably more along the lines of middle class. So they okay. would definitely look at Cheshire as being that upper class, right? Oh, so that was like the rich neighborhood. Yeah, just a little okay. bit. Like they still connected with them, but they were just uh, just above. I think we can all identify with that. Yeah. I grew up in a town like that. Like just my my town was split. We were like the middle class town. And then And then so you some could of tell, your friends like, lived in the big house neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah, I know mm-hmm. what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> they had a room that you couldn't sit in, like that nobody used. <laughs> that was. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, so let's see. Uh, Watertown kids looked at Cheshire kids as preppy and they had the popped collar types, you know. Are they all, I feel like all 80s villains inhabited this town. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, oh, for sure. And I always picture, and I'm pretty sure, so I have a, um, I had heard about this case actually from my other roommate in college, um, Christine, who lives in Cheshire. And we all, I mean, I grew up in New England. So mm-hmm. like at some point, all of us popped our collars. I have a short neck, so it actually elongated it for me. I thought it was a very good look. It's a flattering look for you. I would <laughs> love to see some pictures. Yes. The double, um, I had like a double collar. Such so. an illogical trend. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you wearing so many shirts? I sweat a lot too. So like, get your life terrible. together. <laughs> Like one would soak it up and then <laughs> you'd one polo shirt as a protective barrier. Yeah, Terrible. two. I'd have two polo shirts. One was protective. usually oh, also the other probably, one was ornamental. I also probably had a white t-shirt underneath. That is too many shirts. And then I would roll this. Stop wearing so many shirts. Well, I did. <laughs> I now see I that. would just look like a little balloon, like walking around. <laughs> you would not. That's terrible. It is too many shirts, though. Yeah. So the way that I was picturing this is we all did our pop collars, but Cheshire would be the one that wore, like, the pearl necklace, too. And that's just the guys. Oh. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. My dad said that joke earlier, and it made me laugh. (laughs) Go, Greg. (laughs) Got it. All right. So Also, um, boys, you can wear all the necklaces you want. Oh, yeah. Do it. And the tennis bracelets. Oh, so fancy. Yeah. We all had Tiffany jewelry. Oh, with the yeah. little heart and stuff. Yeah, no, I'm, mm-hmm. I I can picture this very clearly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Lindsay can still recall the fear in the um, surrounding towns after the home invasion. So after this imagine. happened. Um, she mentions like how her family always locked their doors, but she specifically remembers one of her friends telling her that um, like their parents who never locked their doors like just started right away. And that was like – I mean, across the board. I, wow. I remember this shook me too, and I was like, we're locking everything all the time. Like, I've... It's, I've, it's so random. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, I could see why. Yep. Um, when Lindsay bought her house recently, um, so she grew up in Watertown and then has now uh, got married and moved there and bought a home. Their uh, house had a hatch to their basement, 
And she, like, the first thing she had her husband do was make a new door and put a deadbolt on it because of the, her yeah, fear. That's how that— And that well, was years—I mean, that was only a couple of years ago. We'll go so. on to get into the, the specifics of the break-in, but that's that's how they got in. So, okay. yeah, I could oh, see. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, so there was a lot of that in the town, and she just remembers that it still—you still feel it. Everyone remembers it. Yeah, And well. it just—it— it scared everyone. I mean, yeah. Well, was... we'll get into what exactly happened, but it is a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's Cheshire. It's it's a very quaint town, has a lot of history. And uh, I don't know, it reminds me of like Stars Hollow in the essence of just people know each other. They're friendly. Yeah. But, um, and they feel safe. You just don't expect, if you live there, you don't expect something like of this caliber to happen there it has a very like safe Mm -hmm. feeling to it and so it it becomes all the more invasive and frightening feeling when you think well if I can't be safe there in the big house neighborhood where can I be safe right Mm -hmm. so yeah I see how I see that thank you for the Cheshire facts you're welcome I'm picturing like people named Steph and Brent and Blake and (laughs) bunch of chads (laughs) so many (laughs) um Probably Bentleys now. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to get into all the names. <laughs> I was obsessed with terrible baby names when I was naming Flynn, so yeah. I have a lot of them. You guys can come to me if you want to hear a whole bunch about ridiculous baby names. Back to the Pettits. Once they were established in Cheshire, they decided to start a family. First came their eldest daughter, Haley, born October 15th, 1989. Haley graduated from Miss Porter's School... Which sounds like a fictional Victorian school for proper young ladies. I love it. Well, especially when you say it like that. Miss Porter's school. Um, it was a prestigious college preparatory school. And she graduated in May of 2007. So right before this happened, she graduated. Mm-hmm. While attending Miss Porter's, Haley ran varsity cross country, played varsity basketball, and rode on the varsity crew team. Haley was also a high honor roll student. While at Miss Porter's, she was elected to the senior leadership position of athletic association head. She won a school award for exceptional community service. And Haley was scheduled to attend Dartmouth College, where she wanted to study medicine, just like her parents. Haley had been an active fundraising um, active fundraiser sorry, for multiple sclerosis research following her mother's diagnosis. She had captained a walk MS team called Haley's Hope. Haley's friends commented um, on the fact that she was good without needing recognition for it. Many of them didn't even know about her charity work. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so she just did that stuff, but she didn't talk about it. She didn't need people to kind of validate her. She just did it. Okay. Which is rare, especially Mm -hmm. in someone young in this day and age. We're all about validation. So, Mm -hmm. um... Then on November 17th, 1995, the Pettit family welcomed another baby into their home, a daughter named Michaela. Michaela was an outgoing and joyful child. She attended the Chase Collegiate School, a small private school that housed students K through 12. And after Haley left for college, Michaela planned on taking over Haley's Hope and renaming it Michaela's Miracle, which was like the MS Foundation. Okay. Michaela loved to cook and enjoyed doing so for her family. The night of the murders, Michaela had planned to cook dinner for her family. So she and her mother had gone to the grocery store. It was a stop and shop. Not that that makes a difference, but it was. um, To pick up supplies for the evening. So she was, like, excited to cook a meal for her family. And her and her mom went to the grocery store to get 
food and stuff. Um, it was then that they were spotted by Joshua Komisarjevsky. Joshua took an immediate and sinister liking to young Michaela, and this chance encounter set off the horrific events that would take place in the following 24 hours. Oh. It's very by chance and awful. And um, so far, I have pronounced Komisarjevsky right every time, and I practiced a lot. I just need you guys to know. Good job. <laughs> it's not an easy one. <laughs> Back at the scene of the crime, the police apprehended Josh and Stephen – so we're we're going back into like the the night of the crime. Okay. Just flash we flash back and now we're flashing forward. Um police apprehended Josh and Steven during their attempted escape. I'm not really sure I can even call it that because they didn't really try. They just forced themselves headlong into a blaze of glory and then their capture. Like the house was on fire, they jumped into the car, just drove super fast into a barrier. So I don't really know what they were trying to do, but I don't, I don't know if escape is the right word. Um, and as soon as they were in the presence of law enforcement, they like gave themselves up immediately. The two were quickly separated and the questioning began. Stephen told law enforcement right away that they had murdered people and set the house on fire. Joshua, on the other hand, was quick to spin the situation in a way that made him look sympathetic. He made sure to tell law enforcement that while Jennifer was dead, the girls were still alive in that house, and that someone should go in after them. How kind. What a gentleman he is. Once the two got into custody, both of them gave a relatively quick confession. But there were some... differences. So I will retell the events of the evening, making sure to notate where the two stories diverge, and yes, in my opinion, and in in the opinion of most of the court of law, one version is clearly true, and the other is clearly exaggerated. Okay. So, it's going to get a little bit hairy, but I'm going to do my best to kind of guide us through it. And then we'll loop back around and talk about the two um, perpetrators. Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komisarjevsky met one another in a halfway house where they were both staying following a prison sentence. So, they have, they both have a history. The two quickly became friendly and shared their proclivities with one another. As it turned out, both were sort of career criminals with a long list of arrests and several prison sentences for burglary in their past. The two had been talking to one another and and planning some sort of event. So they both talked about how they liked to rob houses. Um, They both liked themselves some drugs. They both had done time in prison and they got to sharing and saying like, hey, we should do this together. We should you know, kind of go into business and go into shitty, terrible business and rob someone as a team. On the night before the murders, when Joshua had spotted Michaela, something went off in his head. He followed Michaela and Jennifer home. So he got in his car and followed them to their house and observed the family for a while, peering through their windows from the bushes. Oh, gosh. I know. And then a text exchange between he and Stephen Hayes happened. And their exchange was as follows. Stephen Hayes sent a text message to Commissar Jeffsky that read, quote, I'm chopping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. So, like, clearly they're planning something. And it involved margaritas, too. Hayes then texted again, quote, We still on? Commissar Jeffsky replied, Yes. Hayes' next text asked, Soon? To which Commissar Jeffsky replied, quote, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Hayes replied, dude, the horses want to get loose, LOL. 
Yeah, lol. Joshua was referring to, which is Joshua Commissar Jeffsky. I know I flip-flop names a lot, and I apologize. Um, I was trying to save myself saying things that were complicated, and sometimes I went back to them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Joshua was referring to his five-year-old daughter, Jada, who is in the custody of his parents, like, since her birth. They just were raising this child. And it should be noted as we move forward that both of these men were fathers, and both of them have daughters. Which, in my opinion, makes it worse. Yeah. They both had little girls at home. Stephen Hayes told the police that he was meeting up with Joshua to rob the Pettit family. Joshua told him that they were rich and the pair could sneak in after the family had gone to bed and steal a sizable amount of money. Stephen claimed to never have anticipated the events that followed. Joshua confirms that their original plan was a burglary and refers to the whole event as a robbery gone wrong. Later, however, it was discovered that deep down, this was not Joshua's motivation at all. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, to dissect, the version that Stephen Hayes has is that they had planned to rob this rich family's home. Mm -hmm. They would go in after dark, steal some money and shit. That was their whole plan, whole goal. And at first, when talking to authorities... That's what Joshua says, too. He's like, yeah, we were going to rob him, and then it all went awry. Both men attributed the grisly outcome to a change of plan, which is pretty convenient, and closely echoes the events in the seminal In Cold Blood case, Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, which chronicles a case that eventually we will cover because it is very important in the history of true crime. Okay. But that's another story for another day. This just, that was genuinely a planned robbery gone totally haywire and awry. Mm -hmm. So this just really echoes that, like, kind of theme. Okay. Upon their arrival in the early hours of July 23rd, and we're talking, like, a few hours after midnight, so it's referred to as July 23rd, but it's night before, basically. Stephen and Joshua entered the Pettit's home, intending on sneaking around undetected and stealing some cash, but they were shocked to find Dr. Pettit was not tucked away in his bedroom, but asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Joshua entered the basement through an unlocked door. Ah. That's where that basement door comes in. I gotcha. I wasn't sure. I forgot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that could be why your friend was like, nope. No. (laughs) Make it something that locks, which I totally get, and I would have done the exact same thing. Leaning on the basement stairs was a baseball bat. Yeah, I know. You have a bat. (laughs) (laughs) Joshua entered um, the sunroom and used the bat to strike Dr. Pettit four or five times in the head. Stephen Hayes claims that Joshua went right for Dr. Pettit without hesitation. So he just went in and went nuts. He was like, saw him, he was like, oh shit, and just bashed his head in. Joshua, however, said that Stephen told him to hit Dr. Pettit in the head, and he did so even though he didn't want to. Oh, poor baby. I know, which again is a super convenient thing to say. And mm-hmm. let me just just remember, if you're talking to these two guys, I don't want to call them gentlemen. They're not. Um, Stephen Hayes is like the doofy criminal, and Joshua Komisarjewski is clearly like an intelligent, okay. planning type of dude. So you're not going to be like, oh, that guy told you to do it? Cool. Mm-hmm. But that's what he says. Joshua and Stephen then bound Dr. Pettis Ritz Pettit's wrists and ankles with plastic zip ties and rope. 
Dr. Pettit remembers one of the invaders telling the other one, we don't know which one is which, but he remembers this phrase happening. Uh, They said, quote, if he moves, put two bullets in him, end quote, which is rich because at no time do they use or even seem to have a gun. There are no guns. They just talk about them. They have a baseball bat. Right. Another thing that kills me. They did this. There was two against four, and this was all with, like, a bat. Wow. And the threat of more. Right. Maybe they had firearms, but in in no place are they mentioned or seen. So that's it. The children and their mother were then bound in their respective bedrooms. So they went to the children and tied and their and Jennifer and tied them up by their wrists and ankles to their bedposts and placed pillowcases over their heads. After restraining the victims, Joshua and Stephen ransacked the house for cash. They then took Dr. Pettit to the basement, so they dragged him, like, bleeding out of the head, Mm -hmm. um, into the basement where they tied him to a support pole. And later, Joshua Komisarjevsky will comment that he put cushions around him to try and make him comfortable and make things okay for him. Even though they also later comment that they thought there was a good chance they had either killed him or he would soon be dead. So he was in very bad shape and bleeding extremely heavily, but they tied him to a pole in the basement and put pillows under him because he's such a nice guy. Stephen and Joshua continued ransacking the house for money but were not satisfied with what they found. They then found a check register with $40,000. They decided to steal $15,000, which is a sizable sum, but I have to wonder why they didn't want more. Both of the men admit to thinking at that point that they had probably, like I said, killed Dr. Pettit or he would shortly be dead. Now, if you have committed a crime, that would most likely end up with you and your partner spending life in prison if you were caught. Why wouldn't you go for all of the money? You've already put it all on the line. Why not? Right. I mean, I feel like they're still not thinking that way. Well, in my opinion, the answer is because for Joshua, that is not what this was really about. Yeah. He wasn't really there for money. Money was nice. Wasn't all of it. It is at this point that Stephen Hayes is sent out to go buy a canister of gasoline. As the two had the notion that they were like, after whatever events occurred, whatever they got what they wanted, they would burn the house down to dispose of evidence, I guess. It is kind of unclear at that point whether they both thought they would be murdering this entire family now or if they were just going to burn down the house after they left. I don't know, but he went out to get gasoline. A lot of their, a lot of it gets hazy in spots and then clears up later in places, so. At first, in his confession, Joshua claims that while Stephen was out, he went into Michaela's room to talk to her and comfort her. I know, it gets really gross. He claims that they were friendly with one another and talked. He speaks of Michaela as though she were his friend, and he calls her KK the whole time. Stop. Yep. A nickname that she only went by in the company of close family. So her friends didn't even call her that. And when the interviewing police officer says, you keep calling Michaela KK, was that something she asked you to call her? Where did you get that from? He goes, oh, no, I heard her mom call her that and her grandmother. Ew. Yeah. So he he had observed this family that night. And all of that sounds pretty fishy to me and probably to you as well. So during the interrogation period, authorities, while, so while they're speaking to Joshua Komisarjevsky and while he's in custody, which I'm assuming this takes place over a few days, they find his cell phone, which told a very different story. Okay. 
a much less friendly story. On it, time stamped during the period of time when Stephen was out getting gas, and there are receipts and, and security pic- like video that shows him getting gas at this time, so we know that that was true. Police found a host of horrifyingly graphic pictures of Stephen sexually assaulting a tied-down 11-year-old Michaela. And he was sending these to... Or the oh no, that they was were just, just for the, it. They were the they, they found his phone and they were oh, in the pictures. He just took pictures. And you know, pictures are time stamped. If, right. If you look at them, you can find out when you took them, and and they could narrow it down to that point in time. Um, you know, because it's two thousand and seven, so she had yeah. a, they had phones that could rec- could keep record of those things. They go into graphic detail in the documentary. I do not feel the need to do so, no, but I it, can guess it was yeah, it was like awful, awful stuff. And she was obviously not having a friendly time with him. No. Now, remember also, this guy, this horrible guy, has a daughter at home. I just, every time I think of it, I think, you have a little girl, and you did this to a little girl. Right. How is that? What part of your brain is okay with that? Um, so when asked about this, the authorities, they confront him with this. They're like, there's all these horrible pictures on your phone. He's like, he committed, he said that he committed sexual acts with Michaela, but did not actually have sex with her, and hinted that she somehow consented to these acts. He also claimed to think that Michaela was 14 to 16 years old, which, nice try, but she was clearly prepubescent. When you're 11 years old, you're a kid for the most part. God, that's right. I forgot she was only 11. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is at this time that evidence from the medical examiners are beginning to come in. Their reports find evidence that Michaela had been raped before her death. Joshua's semen had been found inside her, which is a disgusting sentence I never want to say again, and her clothing had been found in the rubble. Her shirt and skirt had been cut off with scissors, which he does admit to, and then doused with bleach, which he does not admit to, in a crude attempt to obviously destroy any DNA evidence Uh that might be on them. So, now I think we're all getting a clear picture of how this whole event went down, but we'll move forward. As I mentioned before, surveillance video from the gas station shows Stephen Hayes purchasing $10 worth of gasoline in two cans, which in 2007, I'm really surprised that 10 bucks got him two cans. Oh, yeah. Well. Maybe it's just New Jersey. Maybe it was much cheaper in Connecticut. I don't know. But it was expensive then. And after returning to the house, he grabbed Jennifer, put her back in the car, and they went to the bank. The prosecution later claimed that this was evidence of a premeditated murder. But I have... I don't know that that is necessarily true. I could see where the prosecution is coming from, but we'll, we'll keep going. Um, so now we're back to our starting point. We're back to where we started, where she goes to the bank to withdraw money, and then the teller calls 911. Stephen forces Jennifer to withdraw the $15,000 that they had decided upon from her line of credit when the bank opens, so they're first thing in the morning. Jennifer tells the bank teller that the men were f- holding her family hostage in their home, Bank surveillance cameras captured the transaction. The bank manager called 911 and reported the situation to police. The manager reported to 911 dispatcher in real time as Jennifer left the bank. The Cheshire police responded to the bank's report by assessing the situation and setting up a vehicle perimeter without revealing their presence. So again, they arrive at the house. They do not say that there are police there. They do not go in the house. They just kind of camp out. Um... I just blows my mind every time. I know. This is, oh, that angers me so much. Yeah, me too. It's going to get worse too. By now it's around 930 in the morning. And this is when the story gets a little blurry. I mean, it's been blurry before, but this is where things kind of conflict a little. According to Stephen, Joshua provoked him into raping and strangling Jennifer, um, which is mom, Jennifer Hawk Pettit. 
But according to Joshua, Stephen came back in a rage and claimed that they would need to kill all three all three ladies. And Joshua claims, he says that he replies with this hilarious quotation. Quote, no one is going to die by my hand today. The fuck? Oh, they're not? Okay. He then claims that Stephen threw the screaming Jennifer on the floor, pulled down her skirt, violently raped her, and then strangled her to death. Here's the thing. Stephen Hayes confessed to all of his crimes flat out. It checks out that he raped and strangled Jennifer. If he was going to lie, I think he would aim higher. Yeah. He said he did it. In the basement, Dr. Pettit, who has regained a little consciousness, hears the screaming and thumping above him of his wife being raped. Here's one of the men saying, quote, it'll all be over soon, and assumes that this man means they're going to shoot all of them. Right. Because remember, he said that he has a gun and he'll shoot them, so that's what Dr. Pettit is still thinking. With that one phrase, adrenaline courses through Dr. Pettit's body, and he is able to fight out of his restraints, open the basement door, and make a run for it. Again, this is where we started. He is staggering out of the house. At this point, I have to Mention, his wife and two children are still alive. Right. Oh, my God. This part is going to make me cry. Yeah. It's just like. It's awful. He's like such a dad right now. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. uh. Hearing the door open, Stephen and Joshua realize that Dr. Pettit has escaped and they are fucking done for. As by now, they have also realized that police are crawling around the property. Because their cars had to be somewhere. They're, They're there. Lawyers later really speculate that they they knew the cops were around. There's not a lot of, like, direct, com- like, confirmation of that, but they do say that they think they knew. And authorities actually speculate, and I, I'm with them on this, that Stephen Hayes knew that the police had followed them back to the Pettit household, and that made him feel betrayed because he had taken Jennifer to the bank to withdraw money, right. and he had been what he thought was nice to her. Mm-hmm. At this point, he had not injured anyone. Mm-hmm. And... He said, you know, he had tried, this is his version of it, he said he had tried to be nice to her, and when he got back and realized she had told it on him mm-hmm. in the bank, he fucking snapped. Now, first of all, rape equals rage. Mm-hmm. It does not equal sexual desire 90% of the time. No. It is an act of rage. Right. And that is what manifested with him. He was enraged, he threw her on the ground, he raped her, and then he strangled her. Yeah, that checks out. Exactly. That's what authorities speculate, and I I completely think they're right in this case. So anyhow, it is at this point, so after Dr. Pettit has left and Jennifer Hawk Pettit is dead, Stephen takes the gasoline, the cans of gasoline he got, and douses the living girls in it, trails it through the hallway and down the stairs, and lights a match. Joshua claims that a crazed Stephen screamed that they had to burn it all down, killing the girls and leaving no witnesses, and that he, Joshua, had protested, saying that they couldn't just kill those young, innocent girls. Joshua said he told both girls they would be okay and then closed their door. He didn't, you know, untie them and usher them out the door or anything, so he couldn't have been too concerned. I try so very hard to be understanding every time we cover any kind of case. Like, I try to see the damage that could have caused somebody to do really desperate and horrible things. But I fucking hate this guy. I do. I hate this guy. And there is no two ways about it. So, Stephen claims that, um, sorry, 
I got really mad for a minute. Stephen then claims that Joshua instructed him to douse the girls in the house in gasoline, and he followed directions, as he has been doing the entire time. Then the house quickly ignited. Stephen and Joshua jumped into the Pettit's car and drove away, bang, into the thing. We're back caught up. Now, if you were paying attention to our timeline, this is the very worst part of this episode, you will remember that the police arrived before Dr. Pettit's escape, which means at the time of their arrival, all four members of the Pettit family were still alive. And had police just chosen to immediately enter the house, none of them would have died. I'm sick. I know. I fucking hate this part. I hate it so much. When they when I found this out, I was just like beside myself. Just just act. Don't sit there and talk in the woods because you think it's fine. It just drives me fucking crazy. And the worst part is, uh, I'll get to that in a second. And this this fact is lost on precisely no one. The families both are like that you could have saved them and you didn't. But the Cheshire Police Department defend their actions to this day going so far as you have a press conference where government officials praise them for their quick action. Oh, the bullshit. It is disgusting. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> the Hawk and Pettit families to this day assume that law enforcement was too focused on catching a bad guy and not focused enough on saving an innocent family. And it sure does seem that way. And you know what gets me, though? I'm sorry. No, go. You know what gets me? So they've been – I know you're going to talk about them a little bit more, Mm -hmm. and I'm aware of this fact. I forget if you say it, but they've been in and out of this prison system so many times. Yeah, we're going to get there. That, like, what pisses me off is that, like, they've clearly been caught a ton of times. Wait wait till you find out how many. (laughs) Yeah. So just, like, go get the family. You're probably going to catch these guys. I mean, at that point, I don't think they know who the people in there are. They just know there are people there. And. All right. Yeah, I know. No, there's a lot to be mad at. Trust me. There really is. But even if this was just an error in judgment on the part of the police, like they just thought, oh, it's not that bad. And then it was. You don't get to make that error when you're an authority figure like that. You need to err on the side of safety first every time. Mm Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have been like, I'm going to make a thing and put up a roadblock and make a perimeter. You should have been like, get the fuck in that house. They didn't even call them. Right. They knew the house they were in. They knew the phone number. They could have called. They could have called any cell phones. All four of them had cell phones. And couldn't, they probably could have gotten there before the wife yes. and Stephen. Yes, they could have. Got back to the house. Like it, they. Even if they were following them in some way, she didn't die immediately right they had a conversation he raped her and then he strangled her and strangulation i don't know if we've talked about strangulation deaths before but they take a lot longer than you see in the movies a, strang- a death by strangling i believe takes like five minutes it takes a long time does, yeah. to choke somebody to death um yeah so anyway um there was probably at least a five to ten minute window wherein they could have gotten in and rescued everybody but if you don't act expeditiously, this is what kind, this is what happens. So, do I think that this was purposefully negligent? Absolutely not. No. I do not think they did it on purpose. Do I think it was a horrible miscalculation? Absolutely. And it never should have gone down that way, but it did. <sighs> so, what became of this whole sordid affair? Well, 
Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komisarjewski were tried independently, and let's just say no one who knew them was exactly surprised. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, Stephen had a decades-long drug habit that had motivated him to lie, cheat, and steal his way through most of his adult life. Stephen Hayes was born on March 30th, 1963 in Homestead, Florida, and grew up rather plainly. He had two brothers, and they seemed on the outset, like, to the naked eye, to have a pretty decent middle, lower middle class life. But Leslie, why don't you break up this angry tension right now and tell us a little bit about 1963 to get a better sense of where Steven was in the universe and where he was growing up, which makes me think of Steven Universe when I say that. Makes me slightly happier. Yeah. I love Um, Steven Universe. (laughs) All right. So for a little palate cleanser. Yes, please. Um... (laughs) <laughs> so I only put in a couple of facts because I think that I've actually talked about 1963 before. It's possible. Uh, weird fact. Frank Sinatra's son was kidnapped. Oh. Did you hear about this? Did you read about this? No. <laughs> I wasn't reading the papers yeah. in 1963. Oh my. Um, so Sinatra ended up paying $240,000 in ransom bef- uh, for his son um, who was returned safely. Oh, good. Uh, the kidnappers were caught and most of the ransom was recovered. Well, that's like, yeah. it has a decent ending. Okay. It does, yeah. Stephen Hawking was told he had two years to live by his doctors. False. False. <laughs> <laughs> and then this pissed me off. Oh, everything pisses us off tonight. <laughs> yeah. Some Barbie dolls came with a book entitled How to Lose Weight. Oh, fuck you, Barbie. Which advised don't eat and a bathroom scale permanently set at 110 pounds. One, there's no way Barbie was 110. She was clearly like 104. <laughs> Barbie, also, I, um, I'll look this up and put it on our socials if I, hopefully, if I remember, um, she would also have been, like, seven feet tall. Her proportions are insane. There, so. yeah. Yeah, with her tiny little feet. Yeah, she she'd have to walk on all fours, too. Yeah. Barbie, if Barbie existed as a human, she couldn't walk upright. Yeah. So. Wild. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they were like, let's put don't eat because she's a doll, but, like. No, they were saying that because, like, be skinny and don't eat. Shitty. Oh, terrible. So that was 1963. All right, well, that's, that's the world that Stephen... Hayes was born into. Um, while reports from his brothers and photos seem to communicate a pretty average life, Stephen does not paint this picture at all. He paints somewhat of a, a different picture. He claims to have grown up in a, quote, very dysfunctional family with a violent father and an alcohol-abusing mother, and he claims that he was sexually abused as a child. Dr. Eric Goldsmith, a psychiatrist who interviewed Stephen while he was in prison, portrayed Stephen as uh, suffering from attention deficit disorder as a child and described his family as chaotic, with his father beating him and his brother and them pitting one child against another in fistfights. Dr. Goldsmith said records show that Mr. Hayes' father, but Stephen, sorry, again, I mix up the names sometimes, once hit one of Stephen's two younger brothers so severely that he broke the boy's leg and a tooth. Mm. Yeah. Quote, Stephen very early on turned towards drugs as a way to basically cope with his emotional problems, Dr. Goldsmith testified, in what is expected to be the last week of testimony. So that was like a more current article, a more current to the case article. So for much of his life, 
Stephen abused alcohol and drugs, including crack cocaine. That was just a little footnote on it. So that was um, f- from the psychiatrist, I guess. I guess he was court-appointed. It's not, it's not really directly linked. They just say that this is a psychiatrist that came in and interviewed him while he was in prison and then testified. So I'm assuming this is a court-appointed psychiatrist. Okay. As an adult, Stephen never really struck out on his own. He continued to live with his mother and was the only one of his, um, him and his three brothers, there were three kids, to never make something of his life. Stephen was convicted um, as an adult for the first time in 1980 at age 16. He was paroled in 1982, but violated his parole seven weeks later. During the time between this incident and the Cheshire murders, Stephen Hayes was arrested nearly 30 times. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of times. He spent most of his time incarcerated. Stephen's last arrest before the Cheshire murders was in 2004, after he smashed a car window with a rock and stole a woman's purse. He was paroled in 2006 and sent to live in the Silliman Halfway House, where he met Joshua Komisarjevsky. Wonderful. Right. Stephen's family um, immediately turned on him after the Cheshire murders, like, on a dime. He had, he had no one defending him. Um, they were horrified at his involvement and told the prosecution that their brother Stephen was no longer family to them and that they would like to move for the death penalty. Wow. Yeah. For his part, Stephen has said and continues to say that what he did was reprehensible, there was no excuse for it, and he did not want to put the Hawk and Pettit families through a trial. He thought they had suffered enough, and he was ready to take his punishment. He has asked multiple times for the death penalty and attempted suicide in prison by squirreling away his psychiatric medication in an attempt to overdose, much like Richard Trenton Chase, who just seems to come back time and time again. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad we covered that case because, boy, is he a reference. Um, Stephen Hayes wanted to die. Yeah. The justice system just wanted it to happen on their terms. Stephen was, in fact, given the death penalty for his hand in the Cheshire murders and attempted and accepted it gamely. In 2009, the state of Connecticut tried to repeal the death penalty, but the state ended up voting to keep it in place, citing the Cheshire murders and specifically Joshua Komisarjevsky as the reason the death penalty should stand. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Crazy. We'll get to Joshua in a second. In 2012, Connecticut successfully abolished the death penalty, and Stephen's sentence was commuted to life in solitary without parole. One of the lawyers for his defense likened his sentence to, quote, being buried alive. Which I never thought of it that way, but it is true. Yeah. Oof. And some might think that that's, you know, deserving, which, I, you know, which is totally fine. I'm I'm always going to be more like I don't really care about like the vengeance thing of things right. like just like I'd rather just get them out of my head and life yeah. type of things but one it's just crazy to me like this person was sentenced to death what during that time and he just wants to die just like let the man die and I think he actually tried to kill himself twice yeah I don't the one the, the one time is very well documented I'm not sure about the other one um but but this lawyer is very clear he said like this guy was like yeah I deserve to mm-hmm. die. Bring it on. Yeah. I can't live with myself. And the justice system said, on our terms, you can die. You And you know what I think bothers me about that is that we have to pay for them to be That there. is a, uh, so, Yeah. It's a whole different debate and you're yeah. not wrong. 
Yeah. So if he wants to die and not take our money, great. I don't want to <laughs> feed. I don't want to feed him. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to be fed. There's a lot to be said for that. And he tried, but he was brought back. Like I mean, he was brought to the hospital and resuscitated. Just let him go. He was sent. I mean, to I death. know that they're not allowed to, but I know. Like, I know. I mean, and there's a lot. I know there are two sides to that, and I know ethically that is not something that medical professionals. But it's not my. It's do. not my problem that he. It's. It's not my business that the guy wants to die. <laughs> I know. I'm just acknowledging yeah. that the professionals that have to I deal know. with his death attempt have certain ethical requirements that they have to fulfill. I know. I get it. But it is complicated. Yeah. It is definitely complicated. And it's something that's, like, rough to think about. And and it seems so backwards, but, like, yeah. this is what happened. Stephen has since been transported to a prison in Pennsylvania where, ironically enough, the death penalty is still an option. But since he offended and was sentenced in the state of Connecticut, life without parole stands. Mm -hmm. In 2019, this is a weird footnote on this story, not a weird situation, but just an odd footnote to have, Stephen revealed that he was transgender and has been diagnosed and had been diagnosed with gender dysphoria at the age of 16. He spent most of his life confused and suffering, self-medicating with drugs. To his credit, he does not cite this as an excuse for his crimes. Right. He sees the two events as being unrelated and more fucking power to him for that. Right. Because there are tons of transgender people in this world that are not killing people and doing drugs and stealing shit. Uh They're just living their lives, even if they have hardships, even if they have a difficult time, even if their family, like, presents problems. They're not doing that. That's not why he committed these murders. And he recognizes that. It's just something that happened, and therefore, I am communicating that. He is, however, receiving hormone replacement therapy in prison and is in the process of transitioning. So, again, just just a footnote. Just a... Yeah. Psychologically, uh, uh, something to drop into your consciousness when thinking of this one particular person and his part in these crimes. Mm -hmm. Because in my opinion, the next guy is much worse. Joshua Komisarjewski is not the dull, petty thief Stephen Hayes is. Joshua has been called pure evil by more people than I can count, just in the documentary I watched and the reports from um, therapists that I have read. Therapists are not supposed to call people pure evil, but you know if they're doing it, then that person really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and this, and I said this before, this isn't usually a position that I take without providing an explanation. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to explain. We'll talk about Joshua a little. Joshua was born to a teenage mother in 1980 and immediately turned over to the system, which means into like adoption. He was, she was like, Ugh, I don't want that. Blech. Um, so why don't you give us a minute of 1980 facts? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh yeah, I have I have things to say. Yeah, and then I'll go into this. You know, we have covered so many people that are not great people, and I rarely call them terrible people. Yeah. But this guy's fucking terrible. Right, well, let's get a little palate cleanser. Woo-hoo! In a moose bush. Oh, in a moose bush. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> There's your French for the week. There's it is. <laughs> There's it is. <laughs> Uh, okay. The Phillies were the World Series champs. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that came back? I, like, couldn't wait to say it. Full I was like, circle! Yes! <laughs> the Pittsburgh Steelers won the Super Bowl. Oh, I don't give a shit about them. <laughs> Funky Town by Lips Inc. was the big hit song. Nice. Yeah. 
uh, Friday the 13th, Raging Bull, Star Wars Episode Five, The Empire Strikes Back, and Airplane are the big movies. Okay. And Caddyshack, I think, was in there. That's not a bad time for movies. No. Um, after Customs found eight ounces of cannabis in his luggage, Paul McCartney sat in jail for 10 days before eventually being released without charges. <laughs> White guys. Oh, God. Wheel of Fortune's Vanna White was discovered on The Price is Right in 1980. So that her whole career is like showing things? Yeah. Is being really well, pretty and demonstrating things? She was on she was one of the first four contestants but never made it on the stage. <laughs> oh, she was supposed to be a contestant. I thought she was one of the girls that's like, look at this. No, man. no they oh. found her like on there. They must have been like, she hot. <laughs> okay, Vanna. <laughs> I bet she can turn some letters. <laughs> she and she still does. She can light up those V's. <laughs> Remember when she had to actually turn them and it wasn't just a oh, touch yeah. screen? <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember. I was like, I think she turned them. No, I was there like, was a then, time when she then, had to actually, like, spin Yeah, I them. remember. Mm-hmm. She, had, she had quite the arm strength. Good for you, Vanna. <laughs> and, and that was my last fact. <laughs> those, were, those are good facts. Thanks. They got us out of me screaming into the mic <sighs> for a minute, because this one makes me so mad. Oh, God. Uh, so, Joshua was adopted at two weeks old by a deeply religious family who was not super well off. They chose to homeschool Joshua to provide the deep religious enrichment they felt that he needed. And you have some homeschool facts, right? Yeah. So um, the 1980s was big for Christian homeschooling, for a Christian homeschooling movement. Delightful. Mm -hmm. Um, It was in tandem with the broader rise of the uh, religious right. Mm -hmm. So the Homeschool Legal Defense Association was founded in 1983 uh, to promote homeschooling and protect parents from state oversight. Okay. Well, they chose to do that, but and for strongly religious regions, mm-hmm. reasons. The Commissar Jeffskis were also um, host to a number of foster children during Joshua's childhood. Uh, one in particular was an older boy named Scott, who went on to viciously sexually abuse Joshua starting at the age of six. So when Joshua was six. It began with molestation, but quickly evolved into full rape. And at this time, Joshua was also being rigorously told in church at a very very young age that homosexuality was the most grievous sin one could engage in and that good children would not even entertain sexual thought or action until they were married. Mm -hmm. So against his will, he's experiencing homosexuality and then going to church and being told that he himself is evil for this that is being forced upon him, even though, like, that that didn't end up being his sexual orientation. It was just what was happening to him in his life at that point. Right. And that any kind of, like, sexual anything was also evil. Right. So a lot of – he was very confused and very – had a lot of self-hatred mm-hmm. for this whole situation. His church was strict, to say the least. And when Joshua's experiences began to manifest as anxiety and depression, which they're almost always going to do when that's your childhood, the church, they wanted to perform exorcisms on him. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. I don't believe that the ceremonies actually happened. And this information comes from, like, a previous girlfriend that he had who, when she was, like, she left the church, too. I don't – this church feels real culty, but I don't have the name of it, so – They considered all of Joshua's problems to be like the devil inside him manifesting. 
Joshua began his childhood as a quiet kid who liked art. And he was talented. There's the, the documentary shows his drawings, and they're all like peaceful meadows with like a doe grazing and stuff, and they're very pretty. Um, he had always been extremely bright and talented. But after his sexual assault as a young child, he started to recreate the situation with himself as the aggressor and his younger sister as the victim. This is also extremely common in victims of sexual abuse. A lot of them go on to abuse themselves. Yeah. And this information came out during Joshua's trial. His father, when presented with it, conceded that it was probably true. Just mm. casual, you know. Yeah, that probably happened. After this, Joshua spent his entire life attracted to younger girls. In his late teens and early 20s, he dated an extremely innocent young girl who was more than a few years younger than him. She's featured heavily in the documentary. Uh, they even got engaged. And Joshua was in obsessive love with this girl, writing her letters, paying her constant attention, needing her nonstop devotion. And let me tell you, I have been in one of those relationships. Love bombing is a real thing, and it is scary. Someone who violently insists on nonstop sex, a constant stream of contact, and soul devotion from you does not love you. They are obsessed with you, and it can only end badly. Yeah. This is another experience I feel like a lot of us have. Mm -hmm. Like, you think it's just you, and then, like, a lot of women are like, oh, yeah, no, 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 I've, I've been through that too. Right. It's nuts to me. In the documentary, this poor girl tearfully confesses to submitting to a lot of Joshua's fantasies, most of which included tying her up and having sex with her while she acted like a little girl. Ew. Mm-hmm. So Joshua's attraction to Michaela Pettit was not exactly far-fetched. At a young age, Joshua would break and started breaking into houses. But he didn't do it like a reckless child. He did it like a meticulous just like an experienced burglar. He did it meticulously. He would stalk the household and break in without alerting anyone of his presence. He could get in and out and no one knew. Like they would, Church kids, man. They know how to sneak around. I guess, dude. Jesus. Um, he used binoculars and night vision goggles. Oh. Like he was really prepared. And other sophisticated methods of stalking his prey. And he once told police, and I mentioned this in the opening, but I don't want you to think it's creative writing. This is true. Um, he once told police that after he had taken whatever he wanted, so like he gathered cash or jewelry or whatever, he would just walk around the house and look at the occupants sleeping just to stand there and watch them breathe. I didn't need you to repeat that. I felt it needed to be repeated. <laughs> he liked that he was in a place that he shouldn't be and that these people didn't know, and he liked being in a position of power. During his time um, of committing burglaries, uh, I mean, during this time where he was breaking into houses, Joshua committed 19 burglaries. <laughs> it's not like they don't go through the system. They go so many times through the system. Um, he was sent to more than one therapist. And while they identified that he could be a sensitive and greatly injured soul, therapists also saw a great potential for danger in Joshua. There was a darkness there and an untapped violence they could see bubbling under the surface. Police were afraid of him. When the cops talk about him in the documentary, they are scared of him. So that tells you something. Joshua had no fear during his run of burglaries. He even broke into the home of a state trooper. Wow. Yeah, didn't catch him. Anybody was game. Like, it didn't matter who you were. Eventually, authorities received a long written confession from Joshua, and by long, I mean like 70 pages. He wrote manifestos while he was in prison. 
I mean, I'm sure he still does. And this confession detailed his skewed perspective that he had entered into some kind of mutual relationship with Michaela and that he wanted the Pettits, who seemed to have everything, to feel the way he had felt and to experience it all being taken away from them. Joshua was also, in the end, sentenced to death and went through the same process as Stephen. So, convicted, death penalty, no death penalty, Pennsylvania. Um, He, too, is imprisoned and in solitary confinement. And I fucking hope he stays there forever. Yeah. In the end, autopsies revealed that both the girls had died of smoke inhalation while tied to their beds. Haley had broken free from her restraints at one point and tried to flee the burning building but succumbed into the flames. Both girls burned to death, very much alive, as the flames crept over them. Dr. Pettit never did return to medicine after the tragedy, and I can't blame him. Mm -hmm. He runs the Pettit Family Foundation, which honors the memories of Jennifer Hawk Pettit, Haley Elizabeth Pettit, and Michaela Rose Pettit by continuing the kindness, idealism, and activism that define their lives. The foundation's funds are given to foster the education of young people, especially women in sciences, to improve the lives of those affected by chronic illness and to support the efforts to help and protect those affected by violence. We will provide a link in the show notes for anyone who would like to make a donation. Dr. Pettit is also a Connecticut state representative and has been since 2017. Oh, wow. And that is the uh, story of the Cheshire murders. Oh, thank you for sharing that Mm, with us, Allie. It's heavy. It was very heavy. And I didn't know a lot about it going in. Mm-hmm. And when I watched the documentary, I'm like, well, this is a home invasion and a murder and, like, you know, a lot of these. But when they got to the bit about the police and these men's history, I just, like. Yeah. It's just so angry. Especially because, like, we see time and time again people that are just processed through the system so many times and then they end up escalating to something horrific. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, and then the thing that sucks about it is most of these people, like, they clearly needed more of, like, social services. Right? Especially Stephen Hayes. Yeah. He could have been – he absolutely could have been fixed and become, like, a – probably on the right path. I think so, too. Um, Joshua, I don't – No. I don't – I mean – he, I think he was doomed from the start, unfortunately. He, he was there. I don't want to say this because there are probably hundreds of thousands of people who have really jarring, awful childhoods and do yeah. not grow up to do these things. But there is sort of a recipe for a serial killer. And a lot of them have the same events that happen and they go on undetected for a long time and fall through the system and then they end up killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he had been – but he – he was in therapy. He was talking to people. That's true, yeah. So I don't so know. So he has that manipulative. Yeah. Well, I mean, he grew up in a cult and he it learned It feels how to like talk. he did, yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, essentially. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know if he needed deprogramming or what, or what. I don't know what, if anything, would have helped him. Some people, you know, I heard it, the debate called Matter Bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I just... And I am always here to explore every angle of why yeah, a person absolutely. ended up who they are. But some people just seem to be bad. And I don't know that there is a timeline wherein he wouldn't have ended up killing someone. Right. Maybe. I don't know what would have stopped that or what he needed, but he sure sure as shit didn't get it. Yeah. 
There was just, there's so much anger in this guy. And again, like I said, rape is rage. It is not sex for the most part. So if you want to rape people, especially defenseless children, you're probably a pretty angry person. (sighs) Yeah. It is awful. So, I mean, I could scream about this forever, but let's let's have a toast. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I would like to toast uh, Jennifer Hawk Pettit. And um, Bank of America teller Mary Lyon. She okay, made that 911 call pretty quick. Yeah. Even though the police misconstrued some of it, she did convey exactly what she was told to convey in a very expeditious fashion. Right. So I toast to them. Okay. Do you have anybody else you want to call out in this story? Um, well, I guess obviously the whole Pettit family. Yeah, the girls too. And the dad. This, and the dad. The lone survivor. Uh, we also have a new patron. We do. Cheers to our pal Ariel for supporting us. We yes. love Ariel. She's also another one that's been like super supportive and wonderful from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't wait to see her on some excursions. And um, we're just so grateful for you helping us. Thank you, Ariel. Yeah, thanks, girl. Cheers. Um, I don't have a glass today, so I can't quite for you. That was terrible. It was the tiniest clink. We need to get a sound effect that John can just put in later that's like, clink. And if we were quietly going about our lives and quite simply ended up in the wrong grocery store at the wrong time, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.